Good morning. Our reading is from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Kate. You can have a seat, and as you go to your seats, uh, let us go to our Father in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be gathered again under your good care and under your good name. pray, Spirit, that you would help illuminate uh, and make real Jesus to us, who is with us even in this moment in a, in a powerful way. Uh, help us to treasure Christ, to see him more clearly as we study your word this morning. I'm grateful that you've given us this opportunity. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, before we jump into uh, Mark, I um, wanted to invite you guys next Sunday to uh, a night of worship that's going to be not just City Church, but two other churches in the area. We did this last year, uh, and it was a great encouragement to my soul, and I know a few of you were able to go last year. Uh, what we did this year is want to have a night of worship on a Sunday, a little bit earlier in the evening, uh, because we knew, knew last year when it was on a Monday, and it was later, it was hard for a lot of us with, uh, with children, especially those of you with young children. Uh, so I just want to encourage you uh, to uh, put this on your calendar next Sunday evening at 5 o'clock at Redemption Story Church. Uh, it's at 5 o'clock to about 7 o'clock. 
uh, maybe even a little bit before seven. And, and so hopefully that gets you home a little bit earlier that evening to put the kids to bed. But uh, I went out there last week with Andrew and he and Nikki uh, rehearsed and I got to hear the other churches rehearsing last week. And I think it's going to be a wonderful evening. Again, that's next Sunday. So I really would encourage you to make the time to be there. As we uh, get into our text this morning, I want to tell a story about a friend of mine uh, named Chris. Uh, this was about five years ago. Chris uh, lives here. He flew up to Idaho with his then-girlfriend, Erin. Uh, so Chris and Erin were in a wedding in Idaho. They, they flew up having a good time. Erin, uh, by all accounts, was uh, a healthy woman. She was in her 20s at that time. Uh, they, they were both excited for this opportunity to be with friends in Idaho, celebrating one of their friends' wedding. Uh, the night before the wedding, Erin uh, is in the hot tub with some of her girlfriends as they're kind of celebrating the, the night before wedding. Uh, she gets up out of the hot tub and, and went upstairs to the, in the house that they were staying at, and she, uh, she immediately felt incredibly ill. Uh, she got dizzy and she, and she passed out. And as she, she blacked out and passed out, she hit her head on the wall next to the landing of the stairs. And after she came to, her friends kind of came to her aid. Uh, no one knew exactly what was happening. They thought, well, maybe this is uh, altitude sickness because they're in higher elevation. Maybe, maybe she was dehydrated uh, because uh, she, you know, they were in a, a hot tub. Maybe she was battling some type of uh, stomach bug. They weren't quite sure. Uh, she, she managed to recover somewhat that evening and went to the wedding the next day. She wasn't feeling great. And then uh, as she and Chris were on the way home, actually uh, arriving at the airport in Boise, uh, she once again passed out. This time, thankfully, the, the taxi driver that they uh, had been in caught her before she hit her head or fell all the way to the ground. And so uh, it was at this point they, they knew something more serious was going on. So they rushed Aaron to the ER to the hospital there in Boise. And when she got to the hospital, what was actually discovered happening was that she had a, a large blood clot in her leg. And when she was in the hot tub, uh, the heat of the water actually broke loose uh, that blood clot into several different pieces and it had traveled and dislodged into her lungs and heart. So what Aaron was actually suffering from in that moment was a severe pulmonary embolism, if you've heard that term before. And if it wasn't treated nearly immediately, she would be dead by God's providence. She was actually in this hospital in Boise that uh, is renowned uh, for its cardiology care, uh, for the physicians there that do this cardiovascular uh, surgery and treatment. So God had her in an incredible place. And so what happened that day is that she underwent open heart surgery in her 20s and where they removed 22 blood clots from her heart and lungs. Uh, and her life was mercifully spared and happy to report that Chris and Aaron are now married. They have a little girl, had a little girl earlier this year. They live in North Fort Worth. You'll probably see them next week if you go to the night of worship. They attend church at Northbrook up in North Fort Worth. But being rushed into the ER that day, no one would have ever imagined that Aaron's greatest need was heart surgery. No one, no one could have ever believed that or thought that. Again, she was, by all accounts, a healthy woman. 
Nobody in our passage that Kate read to us this morning out of Mark 2 thinks that they need heart surgery. No one in this passage thinks they need a heart doctor, but that's exactly who Jesus is. Jesus always addresses the heart. Our our greatest need, no matter who you are, no matter uh, how long you've been alive or what your experience is uh, this morning, your greatest need is at the level of the heart. Jesus always addresses the heart. So with the paralytic and his friends, he sees hearts of faith. He sees a heart needing the forgiveness of sin, and he acts with the authority of a heart surgeon. Jesus also sees uh, in the passage after that the sick hearts of the sinners and the tax collectors, and he moves toward them in love. He is the great physician. I know our church, I'm looking at a few of you right now, has a lot of uh, resident doctors, uh, those of you who are in the medical profession. So you obviously are in the business of interacting with the sick. Uh, This is why, uh, I would imagine, I've talked to most of you, this is why you've uh, pursued being a doctor, pursued medicine, is because you have a heart for treating sick people. It's the ones that don't think that they're sick, or the ones maybe that you even encounter in a clinic or in a hospital that don't want to heed uh, to your advice or your treatment, the, the people that don't think that they're sick or don't think that they're as sick as they actually are are the ones that we have a hard time treating. And this is exactly what Jesus is essentially saying to the Pharisees at the end of our passage. It's uh, the sick need a physician, and that's who I have come to heal if you're taking notes on the, on the handout that you got as you came in this morning, I want to just give you the main ideas we usually do. Uh, the main idea this morning is Jesus has the authority to forgive the sin and love the sinner. Jesus has the authority. We'll read more about that and think more about that. He has the authority to forgive the sin and love the sinner. Starting uh, in this passage, and actually we're going to be looking at this this week and then again next week, we're beginning this section of Mark that highlights uh, five different uh, conflict stories with the Pharisees or the scribes. Uh, we, we, we've already seen a little bit last week that Jesus is going to come, come into conflict, come up against the kingdom of the serpents against Satan and his kingdom, and it's going to be personified very often in Mark by the scribes and the Pharisees. So today we're going to look at two of these conflict stories, and then next week we'll look at the other three. The Pharisees, as uh, most of us know, uh, were religious leaders of the day. So these were the people that were all about religion, Uh, They were about laws and keeping laws. These are the men that Jesus says in uh, John chapter 5, verses 39 of 40. He says uh, to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them they have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The gospel, the grace of God is for even the Pharisees and the scribes. And oh, that they would see that everything that they were studying in the scriptures were pointing to Jesus. And if they were to come to Jesus, if they were to acknowledge that they were sick and in need of help and healing, oh, how Jesus would love to heal even the Pharisees and the tax collectors. 
But what we will see over and over again uh, through the Gospel of Mark, and certainly this morning, is that that is exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees do not do. Uh, They are the ones that are standing apart from Jesus, away from Jesus, questioning Jesus and his motives. And so let's, let's dive in and begin there in verse 1 uh, of chapter 2, and we'll see how all this plays out. And this is a familiar scene, as we, uh, as we heard Kate read, uh, Jesus, once again, uh, many gathered with him. This time, he's in a home, and he's preaching. Uh, we've, we've already seen Jesus teaching and preaching several times here already in the book of Mark. And then Mark says that they came, I love that, it's just they came, and who is they? It's four men uh, carrying on a bed or a mat uh, their paralytic friend, uh, a friend who had no movement in his legs, was unable to do anything but be carried by his four friends. And what we see is that all the crowd uh, that was gathering around Jesus was preventing these men uh, from getting to Jesus in, in the uh, quote-unquote normal way and just going through the front door and, and being able to go up to Jesus. And so there was quite a bit of creativity that they had to undergo in order to get to Jesus. And, and what this already shows us, and this is something that I want us to see as we study Mark for the next several months, is that uh, what we're going to see so often in Mark is that those who are closest to Jesus in proximity, physically close to Jesus, the Pharisees, the crowd that had gathered around him, that it is so often those who are outside, the outsiders, that get Jesus, that really get him. These men uh, know that Jesus can heal their friend, but the crowd is preventing them from getting to Jesus in the normal way. And so what we see them doing is cutting a hole in the roof, lowering their friend down on his bed to Jesus. And back at this time, roofs are not like this roof where it would probably be incredibly disruptive and noisy uh, for someone to come through this roof. Uh, but at the time, the roofs were, were mainly sticks and maybe even clay tiles. It would be significant, but maybe not quite as dramatic as we're thinking about someone lowering through the roof, but it it nevertheless was a sight to see the desperation of these men to get their friend to Jesus. And so they lower him down, and then we read there in verse 5, it says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. He looks right into the hearts of the friends. Jesus sees our hearts. And what does he see when he looks upon their heart? It says that he sees their, their faith. Their faith and trust in Jesus in that moment is what brings the paralytic to the one who would be able to heal him to the utmost. And so in that moment, this paralytic, uh, this paralytic has his greatest need met. It's probably not the need that he thought at that point. Certainly the friends had a faith in Christ, but what does Christ say? He does not say you are healed. He says your sins are forgiven. His greatest need is the cleansing of the guilt of sins. And so what this means for this paralytic in this moment, before we go any further in this story, at this moment, this man who is still laying on his bed, and Jesus is essentially declaring that his name is written in the book of life, this man is healed. 
to the utmost while he still lays on a mat. Having feeling in his heart is better than having feeling in his legs. The presenting issue at hand was the paralysis of his limbs. This is why they brought him to Jesus. This is what Jesus was, they were wanting him to address. But Jesus always goes deeper than we imagine. He goes straight to the heart. He goes to the heart because there is paralysis in our heart that he wants to address. And we see that all throughout history, certainly at this time, maybe even especially today and in, in, in our point in history, that uh, our answers, the answers that we come up for our own problems, never go deep enough. They, they never do. In our flesh, we're always going to seek uh, our own answers to our problems and think uh, that there's something other than the heart level. Uh, this is why we have things like behavior modification. This is why we have so many different secular therapies or psychologies. And there's been countless theories about how we can help people, especially post-enlightenment, the science. This is the technologies that have come into our culture, into our world. This is why we're quick uh, to take a pill, maybe. We're in, uh, quick to read a self-help book. We're quick to be able to think that what we just need is to change my behavior, uh, to change what's on the outside, but Jesus is always seeking to change our hearts. Our greatest need is at the heart level. And, and we also uh, have this tendency to want to fix ourselves as well. Uh, so not only are we messed up because we think that our biggest problem is things that are uh, other than our heart. It's maybe uh, our external circumstances or the things that are happening to us, although those are important. But then we try to fix ourselves. This is what I just said with self-help. That's the largest section likely in any bookstore that you go into is self-help but it's ultimately foolishness because we need a heart doctor. We need treatments from a good authority outside of ourselves to meet our greatest need. And so we see that these men in Mark 2 had faith. They had faith that Jesus could heal their friend's legs, but Jesus chooses to do so much more than that. Now, we, we might think that uh, in, in verse 6 that we would still be interacting with the friends in this paralytic. But look at verse 6. All of a sudden, uh, we shift attention to the scribes of the Pharisees. And so verse 6 says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can forgive sins but God alone? The right they're actually right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they are right. But as the scribes and the Pharisees will continue to do, they are misinterpreting what Jesus is doing. They're misinterpreting the word made flesh right in front of their eyes. They only have one paradigm, and that is that Jesus is a blasphemer if this man is forgiving sins. They have no eyes to see that he is God. You have no category for the fact that this is God in flesh, forgiving sins. And then skip down to verse 9. This is what Jesus says to them. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed, and walk? 
but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise and pick up your bed and go home. It might be a bit confusing to us to even understand what Jesus is trying to say there is which is easier? I mean, that's a good question. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up, take your bed, and go home? Sinclair Ferguson, wrote, writing about this verse, I think puts it very well. He, he says this, if the word of healing has been effective, surely his word of forgiveness must have been effective too. If Jesus can forgive sins, he's saying, I'll also, for, I'll also heal this man's legs. And, and as he stands up, he goes, look at this. I've healed this man. He is up and walking. And if I've done this, surely I've also done the former. I've forgiven him of the guilt of his sins. Jesus, for the first time in the Gospel of Mark here in this verse, refers to himself as the Son of Man. He will, he will refer to himself uh, most often as the Son of Man as we continue to read through Mark. Uh, but by doing so, by Jesus saying that he is the Son of Man, he's actually fulfilling what Chris read to us for the call to worship in Daniel 7. In that passage, we hear that the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father, and the Son of Man is given dominion or authority and a glory and a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. God the Son, wrapped in flesh, rightly claiming this Daniel 7, Son of Man, authority to forgive sins, is exactly what ends up getting him killed. So here, right off the bat, conflict with the scribes and the Pharisees, and it's the fact that Jesus says he has the authority to forgive sins, which will ultimately put him in the grave. It's what ultimately the scribes and the Pharisees will see as the reason to kill him. Many of you are probably familiar with the name Johnny Erickson Tata. She's a famous Christian author, and she was left a quadriplegic after a diving accident years ago. She was 17. She was in Maryland, and she had dove into very shallow water, not knowing that it was shallow, and she broke her fourth vertebrae and was left a quadriplegic to this day. And after her accident, she came to faith in Jesus Christ, and she wrote this, uh, remarking on this passage in Mark. She said, Jesus could heal the paralyzed man because, and only because, he had authority as the Son of God to forgive sin. It was the point he wanted to make with the Pharisees. For him, healing withered legs would take no more effort than setting stars and moons in motion. For Jesus, it's all merely finger work. But when it comes to forgiving sin, it was no easy effort for our Savior our redemption required blood and a strong arm of salvation. I collapsed into tears when I began to see the glimpse of how heinous my sin was. Physical healing paled in comparison to the unthinkable abuse my transgressions heaped on my Lord. Here's my uh, first exhortation to us this morning. As you look at your handout, it's the, the first item under our main idea. It's open your hearts to Jesus, the forgiver of sins. What is your greatest need? What is my greatest need if it is not forgiveness of the guilt of sin? That is our biggest problem, beloved. How has Jesus gone after your sinful heart? How are you tempted to see something else other than your sinful heart needing to be healed as your greatest need? 
It's so easy. We do this all the time. I know I do this all the time. If I just have this, if I just have a new job, if I just move, if I just have a different relationship, if I circumstances changed. And, and listen, Jesus cares about those things very much. He cares about where you work. He cares about your suffering. He cares about the affliction that you might have, maybe even physically. He cares deeply about those things. It's not to say that he doesn't. But whatever we have put above Jesus coming after our hearts that needs to be laid down. Because anything that we are putting above the fact that our hearts are sick with sin and need a healer and need a great physician to come in and heal us from our sin, to be washed anew in the forgiveness of Christ, that is our greatest need. Excuse me. Jesus has the authority to forgive the sins of your heart. Do you see that as your greatest need this morning? Do you see that as as what you would come in if Jesus himself were physically here and you knew you had an incredible need no matter what it is? Do you feel like you would come to Jesus and ask him first to heal your heart, to remove the sin from your heart? What the crowd here in Mark 2 doesn't know yet is the way that Jesus will forgive us of sins. The way that Jesus will forgive the paralytic of his sin is that he exercised this authority, this authority that he has to forgive sin. What he will ultimately do is, is release his claim on that authority by being subjected to a gruesome death. This is what Philippians 2, verses 6 and 8 say. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Once again, we saw this last week with the leper. Jesus is trading places with this paralytic. And what do I mean by that? The one that he has just healed, the one that he has cleansed of sin. By the end of Mark, we will see Jesus as the one laying motionless with friends, lowering him, but this time into a grave. Then three days later, we will see the Holy Spirit Uh, raise him from death. We'll see Holy Spirit-empowered Jesus be resurrected. Jesus will stand up. He will walk out of the tomb. And when the resurrected Jesus will go out from the tomb, everyone will be amazed and glorify God. That's what we see there in verse 12, that this man who rose, picked up his bed, went out before them all. They were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. And in the resurrected Jesus, we too have never seen anything like that. That Jesus rises, walks out of the tomb, And we who are found in Jesus have died with him, and we too have been raised to new life. This is our life. We are healed. We are able to stand in new power and resurrected power and be able to uh, proclaim the glories of God. It is Jesus who says to us, later on we'll see this in Mark, not, not to pick up our bed, but to pick up our cross and follow him. This is the life that we live as disciples of Christ now is we're picking up our cross, but we're able to walk because he has given us new life.
pick up your cross and follow me. Verses uh, 13 through 17, this section, the second story that we read here in this passage. First, we see that this is a picture of Jesus' love for the sinner. Levi, who is Matthew, ultimately we'll know him as the disciple Matthew, Apostle Matthew. Uh, he he uh, is immediately uh, told to follow Jesus, and he becomes a disciple in that moment. He, he picks his, up his stuff. He follows Jesus. And what he does in celebration, more than likely because of the fact that he is now following the king of the world, is that he throws a party. He hosts a dinner in his home. And what he does is invite Jesus over And then he also invites other tax collectors and sinners. Levi was a tax collector. Tax collectors at this time were the deplorables in this culture. Uh, They were the ultimate and the despicable. Uh, They were wicked. They were seen as swindlers and traitors. Uh, The religious leaders uh, would have seen them as incredibly unclean. Uh, Because uh, they're interacting all the time with Gentiles. They're interacting with the Romans. And they're they're seen as betraying the people of God. So they're not, these these people that Mark is talking about, having a meal with Jesus, are not just uh, uh, unintentionally sinning occasionally. What, What he is saying is that in the eyes of the Pharisees and scribes, these people were reprobates, ignorant, wicked And once again, we see the Pharisees challenging Jesus, asking why does he eat with these people? You can even hear them saying this to the the disciples and probably the, the contempt that they had in their voices. Why would he be eating with these people? And once again, they only have one paradigm. As we saw in the, in the previous story, the one paradigm is uh, only God can forgive sins. If Jesus is forgiving sins, he's a blasphemer. And the paradigm they have here is that if you eat with the unclean, you become unclean yourself. You would catch sin like a cold. But Jesus tells them, no, I, I am the healthy one here. I am the one that is able to heal. I'm the one that has come as a physician to care for the sick. And what he is saying, he's insinuating that if the Pharisees were truly to see that they themselves are sick, he would be able to cure them as well. But instead, they only see themselves as righteous. But it's it's a self-righteousness that we see in the Pharisees. It's a self-righteousness that actually is unrighteousness ultimately. And these, these Pharisees were doing what you and I are so often tempted to do. We're so often to attempt to follow God, to be obedient to all that God has commanded, to follow the law of God, uh, but we do so with a heart that is far from God. We, we work so hard, they, they were working so hard to follow God, they even added more laws on top of the word of God, uh, the traditions of man like we talked about yesterday, and eventually what they do when, when they're trying to follow God with a heart far from God and adding rules to the word of God is that they build walls, is that they separate, and they're the ones that say, I'm not like those guys, I'm not like those people These are the ones that we read in the Gospel of Luke, the Pharisee that says in his prayer, Lord, thank you that I am not like a sinner, like that guy, like that tax collector over there. I'm not like him. Thank you. It's because of this thinking that they were appalled that Jesus 
would feast with such people. I want to ask you a question as we look at this passage. Do you see in this passage that Jesus did not make the sinners and the tax collectors repentance a precondition for him to eat with them? Do you see that? Instead, he moved toward them in love and with mercy. He accepts fellowship with them, genuine fellowship with uh, tax collectors and sinners. And we know, because we know the ugliness of our own heart, I know the ugliness of my heart, we know that religious people would never do such a thing. Religious people would, would never eat with such people. It's why Jesus will, will tell them in Matthew's account of this same story that I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy. He's come to heal the sick. And he sees into these people's hearts that they are sick with sin and desperate need of mercy. Here's the second exhortation or application that I have for us this morning. Open your hearts to sinners, as did Jesus, the lover of sinners. Open your hearts to sinners, as did Jesus, the lover of sinners. I think sometimes, uh, as I was considering this passage this week, I think sometimes what we can maybe see in our particular tribe, and what I mean by that is our, our particular place on the evangelical spectrum as, as, a, uh, as a church, as a people who hold to orthodox beliefs rightly, uh, who hold fast to the doctrine of truth, to the word of God, what I see maybe more often than I would like to is that we are slower to move toward those who we see are walking contrary to the will of God. We are slow to move toward others and even have a meal or a conversation with such people before we require them to change, before we require moral reformation or behavior change before we do such things. And, and what I am not saying in this moment, what I'm not saying is that we, we don't be clear about repentance. Uh, what I'm not saying is that we're not clear about what, what God requires. Uh, Jesus himself has been preaching a a gospel of repentance. He's been preaching, repent, and believe the gospel. We, look, we looked at that last week. Those are the first words of Jesus Christ in the gospel of Mark. He's preaching and teaching all over Galilee, repent and believe. And these tax collectors and sinners surely know, they've in fact surely heard Jesus say those words, repent and believe. But we have to notice that in our passage today, Jesus in Mark 2, 13 through 17, Jesus does not say, repent and I'll have dinner with you. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, repent and then I will sit with you. We don't know if any of these tax collectors or sinners in this particular story come to faith. We know that, we know that some do. And surely, if others do in this story, if any of these tax collectors or sinners come to faith in Jesus Christ, we know that they would do so because they have, without a doubt, seen the love of Christ. They know that Jesus loved them and loved them before they repented. And this is the scandal of grace. This is the unbelievable scandal of grace because God does not save in order to love God saves because he loves. 
He doesn't save in order to love you, but God loves and he saves because he loves. If, if all of my time is only spent proclaiming uh, here either on a Sunday morning or in my own life, if all my life is only pro- proclaiming repentance, but I've never shared a meal or moved toward a neighbor or had a conversation with an unbeliever in love and for love of their soul, then I am in error. I don't want to be a morally superior separatist like a Pharisee. What I want for myself and what I want for us is for us to know that it's the sin in my own heart where the sin in my own heart increases, grace abounds all the more. Where sin increases, grace abounds. And I am, I can say with Paul, the chief of sinners. And may we all be able to say that we are the chief of sinners and move toward others in humility. Would you pray that we would be people that would do such a thing? Would, would you pray that we would be ones that said, I'm, I am the one that is sick with sin. I was the one that was so far from God that Jesus loved me. He's, God sent his only son to die for such a man as me. And I am blown away in humility. Barbara Duguid is a uh, Christian writer. She's married to a uh, professor and theologian, Ian Duguid. Uh, and she has written a book uh, several years ago. The, the book is called Extravagant Grace. It's a wonderful book. She says this in Extravagant Grace. She says, we are terrified that too much grace equals freedom from human effort and that such a freedom will inevitably live, uh, lead to debauchery, licentious living, and a loss of interest in pursuing holiness. What if being reminded that you don't have to change to win God's favor unleashes such a joy and sense of safety in your soul that changing becomes the thing you desire the most? That's the hope that we have to offer sinners that, that God loves sinners into change. God loves sinners into changing and to be obedient. And that we, as a people of God, as those who bear the mark of Jesus Christ, love them too. What would that look like? This is what Jesus has done for us. He's seen our sick hearts and he came to us and dwelled with us. And those he has called, he has brought a beautiful salvation. He is our new exodus as we've been talking. We, we've been ransomed from the slavery of sin. In this passage, Jesus having a meal with sinners is actually a preview. It's a small picture. It's anticipating the end times wedding feast. We, as a people of God, will sit with him and feast. It will be a wedding feast. It will be one in which uh, the bridegroom, Jesus, will feast with his bride, the church. And that day is coming soon. That day we will marvel in the physical presence of Jesus. What we will marvel at in that moment is that he forgave our sins. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. He wiped away our filth and we will see the fullness of his kingdom and we will glorify him forever and ever. Amen. The church will marry a doctor that removes the sin from our hearts and who will bring us home fully healed. Will you pray with me? Father, we 
We're grateful that you are the good physician, the great physician, the heart doctor, the one that sees our heart, sees our greatest need, and addresses that need by wiping clean the guilt of sin, and that you did so by taking on that filth, our own sin, on the cross, that he who knew no sin became sin, and that we would receive the righteousness of God. May we be humbled to the utmost when we consider the grandeur of your grace and love for sinners like us. And as we walk in the newness of life, as we pick up our cross and follow you, as we are reminded that we are united to Jesus Christ, may we move toward sinners. May we move toward sinners knowing that they are far from you, but offering them the love of Christ. It's the love of Christ because God so loved the world, he sent his only son. And may you save more sinners. May you forgive more sin. And may your kingdom grow. Your kingdom come. We'll see the church expand across the earth until you come for us again. And we will feast with you at that great wedding day. It's coming soon and we so look forward to it. And we ask all these things and we praise your name and glorify your name in Christ Jesus. Amen.